introduce a guest speaker this morning. I know I was away last weekend, but I couldn't resist the opportunity but to have my roommate from college who's here in town as one of the guest speakers for the Weekend to, the Rem- to Remember, the Family Life Conference. He's one of the speakers, and so I couldn't resist but to have him preach in the pulpit this morning. First hour was a total adventure, I have to warn you, because he has a lot on me. We've known each other for 21 years and lived together off campus at Liberty University doing specific ministries so that we would live off campus and do it. But uh, So we had a special pass to do that, I'm saying. But we... We sharpened each other. We had good times together. And, you know, he is a genuine, godly Christian, Brian is. Brian is a friend uh, from Virginia, and he is a guy who lives the gospel. He's transparent. He's a guy that really taught me to see beyond ministry to see people and to love people. He's a lover of people. He's a church planner. He and his wife, Jen, are in Charlotte, North Carolina. They have a church of uh, 100-plus that's grown from from just uh, nobody to, to this group over a couple years, and he is an evangelist and a real heartfelt preacher. I'm really looking forward to having you hear him. They have three children, and I'm going to remember the names now. Brantley, who is 11, their daughter, and then they have two sons, an eight-year-old named Palmer and then a three-year-old named Gibson. Got it right. And Palmer has no direct, direct connection to Palmer, Alaska, except that he, Brian, was with his family in Fairbanks for three years with the military. But really, Palmer's a family name. It's Brian's middle name. And and uh, so let's give Brian now a warm Anchorage Grace welcome as he comes to the pulpit. All right. Well, I had a great day. Got in on Thursday, or Friday. Jeff and I went skiing at Alyeska. Is that how you pronounce it? Alyeska, yesterday. And Jeff showed me there are many ways to get down a mountain <laughs> that don't involve skis. And so that was fun, fun to watch. I, but to his credit, we, uh, there are no signs on Alyeska, like where to go. There no, there, I'm a blue skier, and so all of a sudden we're going, and, and, and Jeff's like, let's go this way. And we end up on this black diamond, which I am not used to. And so Jeff showed me how not to get down, and then I was able to make it down. So it was, it was fun. Right, I went around it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's interesting to be introduced as Brian Goins. When you're a parent of a three-year-old, I have half the amount of kids that, that Jeff has. Uh, he has always been an overachiever uh, with me. It's always been about competition with him. But when you're a parent of, a, of, of three, you, you cease to be known as Brian Goins. Uh, you, cease, you become br- like Brantley's dad. Oh, you're Brantley's dad. Oh, you're Palmer's dad. Any parents in here? that you, become, you, you have no identity anymore outside of your kids. That's the way it was in college with me and Jeff. Oh, you're Jeff Kratz's roommate. You think about that. My last name's Goins. His last name is Kratz. We had a few jokes thrown our way. People thought we were going to start a urology practice. If you don't get that joke, talk to a college student. He is now, he actually became a doctor. I can't believe it. Dr. Jeff. And I remember uh, with Jeff actually tutoring him in a youth class. Now, that's pretty bad when you're getting tutored in a youth class, a youth ministries class. It's like, here's the clip art. This is where it goes. No, I'm just kidding. The youth pastor's going to kill me now. But um, made it through and to see him as the doctor. So I, I look back and I go, the pupil has become the master. Jeff is the man. Again. 
competitive. He goes ones up me once again. It is great to be back in Alaska. I spent uh, years five through seven up in Fairbanks. So I, I actually can tell my kids I went to school in the snow both ways uphill. And I never knew what a snow day was uh, until I moved back east to, to live in Virginia. I spent years eight on up in Virginia. Found out what, what's called a snow day. Now, a snow day happens is when the weathermen sniff snow, and they do a preemptive closing. They're like, tomorrow we're out. The whole week we're calling off. And then everybody rushes to the grocery store to pick up milk, bread, and eggs. Because as you know, when you're stuck in a blizzard, you need to have plenty of French toast. <laughs> so that's what they do. It's, it's terrible. Well, listen, I, I do want to pray, and then we'll dive into the Word. Dear Father, we come before you. We acknowledge you as the great God. The one that did not just was not content to be away from us. You entered into history and time uh, to be with us. We thank you that uh, the gospel is not about what we do for you, but it's about what you have already done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I can't change anybody's heart with a snazzy illustration or a great transition. Lord, only you can do that. And so we invite your spirit now to take over. If there are words that I speak today that are not from you, I pray, Father, that you would allow people to forget them by the time they get up and leave. But, Father, if there are a few that have been touched by your Spirit and touched by your grace, then I pray that they would cement in our hearts and minds because ultimately we came here not just to hear a message but to leave transformed and transformation comes through your Word. It divides our hearts and our minds. It it cuts into our, our flesh and affects our heart. And so, Lord, do that. Only you can do it. So, God, we give you this this moment in your name. Amen. They say that sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. Is that true? No. Ask any 10th grader that has heard the phrase, let's just be friends. You know that words can hurt. There are words that are very painful in our life. Words don't just hurt, though. Uh, They can heal. Back in the day, in the 1960s, when our country was divided by the plight and the sin of racism, preachers would get up on Sunday morning and they would use this book uh, to say that God is in favor of separate but equal. We had a country divided and using scripture to do so. But that division was, was torn asunder when we galvanized around one speech, when one simple phrase rung out and brought healing to our country, which is the simple phrase, I have a dream. And it brought healing to our country. Uh, Words can hurt. Words can heal. Uh, Words can do a lot. Phrases can can change and and create movements. Back in 1988, there was an executive at a company that came together and he had to come up with a new marketing slogan for their whole company. And so as he sat around the boardroom, he came up with one and it didn't just help move product. Uh, It really changed the culture. Six years or eight years later, no, six years later, in 1994, it would galvanize four students right before the night before their graduation, uh, for them to risk uh, being put in prison, risk their very life, risk being expelled from school, to scale the Vine Center, a 10,000-seat auditorium. That one little phrase prompted these four guys to sneak onto campus, to get past the guards, to take a rope 30 feet up, to get to the base of a dome, a big, huge arena to avoid a helicopter and its searchlight nipping at their heels 
and then to scale to the top so that at sunrise there would be a banner sitting there for all of the graduating class and parents to drive up and see class of 1994. Just do it. That phrase propelled Jeff and I and two other guys to risk everything that we knew and scale what became our Mount McKinley. That simple phrase was brilliant. You think about it. It wasn't just a little phrase that would be stuck in the back of your head. So then when you were looking at a a pair of $120 Nike Air Jordans, you weren't thinking about the logistics of, of whether or not this purchase was worth it. All you heard was just do it. It works across many contexts. If you're an athlete and you think about a marathon, you hear in the back of your head, just do it. If you're wanting to date that cute little girl in school that you never thought you had the courage to ask out, you hear in the back of your mind, just do it. And then when it's time to break up with her, but you're just not sure you can break her heart, you hear... Just do it. And then when you decide, no, I really wanted to marry the girl, then you come back groveling on your knees saying, just do it. In business, when you're wanting to start at that company that goes against all odds, you hear in the back of your head, just do it. And when four students the night before graduation want to risk everything so they can put a little banner up on the dome, they hear the phrase, just do it. I'm going to tell you a little bit about who Jeff really is today, and I'm excited about that. What do you guys think is the most well-known verse Uh, In all of scripture, what what would you say it is? John 3.16. And I will submit to you that I think that is the most well-known annotation in all of scripture. But if I were to ask most of the people on the street, hey, could you recite for me John 3.16? I don't think anybody would come up, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, and that's in the King James, he shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Most people can't give you that. They know John 3.16. They just don't know what it says. But I do think that most people, they may not know the annotation, but I think most of the world would give you the most well-known piece of Scripture when they would quote to you the phrase found in Matthew 7.12. That's where we're going to be today. If you're not there, it's a simple, small, short phrase, very marketable, otherwise known as the golden rule. You may know nothing about the Bible, but you know the golden rule. Unbelieving philosophers will let you know that they believe that it is the core of all ethical behavior. Gandhi, a devout Hindu, read through the Sermon on the Mount, saw the line, saw the golden rule, and he said this phrase about the Bible. He said, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it, listen to this, you read it as if it were just good literature and nothing else. There's so much dynamite in Scripture that goes unlit, wouldn't you say? That if we were just to apply it, we could turn the world upside down. There's a lot of dynamite in Matthew 5, 7. There's some of the most memorable verses found in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to read it aloud, if you were to preach the Sermon on the Mount, it would take maybe 10 to 15 minutes. And I know what you're thinking to yourself. Well, why is it Jeff goes so long? Okay, he, he's not Jesus, okay? He can't do it in 10 to 15 minutes. It takes us a little bit longer to get it out and to find some nuggets. But chances are... Matthew 5 through 7 really is more like a a two to three day conference that Jesus did uh, up in the hills above Capernaum, the fishing village. And more than likely what Matthew did was he just recorded all of the best tweets that came out of the conference. Uh, You know many of them, to be salt and to be light. Uh, You've heard of the Lord's prayer. Uh, You know that if you build your house upon a 
rock, right? You, you know many of these. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who take a visiting pastor to Alaska to ski. You know of these that are in the text. By the way, that was an awesome mountain. I just loved it. I'm going back. I got to go back. It was amazing. No, we don't have those kind of mountains. In, uh, they call them mountains in North Carolina, but let's be honest. I mean, they're like hills compared to the things out here. We know in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, a ton of stuff that's in here. And notice the reaction after it was all said and done. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. That word is perplexed. Uh, they were uh, gripped with, at his teaching. And it's because they didn't expect such teaching to come from this man. I mean, the greatest thing that Jesus had done up until this point in time was construct a number of good tables... He blew their categories. This kind of teaching was only supposed to come from the religious elite, those that had been to seminary. I mean, at least had gone to masters, right? That, that, that spoke with flowery words, that prayed with amazing vocabulary. That, that knew the first five books of the Bible backwards and forwards. That would get up and pray with great language and they would not only fast one day a week, they would fast three days a week. They would give not just 10%, but up to 33% of their income, what most Pharisees and scribes gave in the day. That's where the teaching is supposed to come from. So this carpenter from Hicktown, Nazareth, I don't know if that's what Palmer's like, but Alaska, but it's just somebody you don't expect to come into the city, to come into a great group of people and speak with authority. Notice what they say there. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He had this authority. Ever since college, Jeff and I have had this grudge match in basketball. And we play every time we get together. And, I mean, I don't like to brag. I'll just let my record do that. But when we play, you'll notice a couple things. We're going to have a game in here at some point in time where we're going to go after each other. And you're going to notice a few things. Number one, we're old. Uh, We're slow. Uh, but my game has authority over Jeff's. Uh, you're going to walk away from that game noting my great fadeaway jumper. You're going to note my stifling defense on Jeff. And you're going to note that how did he ever win any games against Brian uh, with the way that he plays? Because my game has authority. But the minute that, that, that LeBron James walks onto this court and yells out, I got next, no one's going to be talking about Brian Goins' game. Because my game doesn't have authority when it comes to Somebody like LeBron James. That's Jesus. When he speaks, those that spoke before have have no authority. They've got no game. Uh, Jesus came to Galilee and people stopped talking about the religious leaders. They noted Jesus has got game. And you think about that. Think about a culture that prided itself on the volume of biblical knowledge that they knew. Did you catch that? They memorized the first five books of the Bible. We're not talking about John 3.16. They memorized Genesis Exodus, Leviticus. <gasps> Are you serious? Yes. Numbers. They memorized the whole deal. They knew Scripture. And to a culture that prided itself on that, Jesus comes along and he blows them away by reducing everything that's known in the Bible to a single phrase. 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Maybe you've heard it said, do unto others that you would have done unto you, or treat others how you would want to be treated. Everybody quotes the first part of the verse, but nobody looks at the second part of the verse. Uh, For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus, who's a master communicator, 
basically believes that less is more. And I will take your 39 scrolls found in the Old Testament and I will reduce them to 10 words depending on your translation. That this is the Bible. This is what the whole thing is meant uh, to be. I had a professor in college that said, Brian, when you speak, bring the cookies down to the bottom shelf. Uh, Jesus brought cookies down so low that kids could have gotten them. Babies could have gotten them. That that's what the whole scripture was about um, when, the, when it was written. Uh, Jesus makes this point over and over again when it comes into scripture that uh, it's not what we don't know about God that causes us to stumble. It's not, it's not the volume of stuff that you know that determines your spirituality. That you know more, you're more spiritual. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, is that if you would just act on what little you know, you could change the world. But all too often, our pursuit of the knowledge of God inhibits us from actually pursuing what God has called us to do. There were two main Jewish schools of thought in Jesus' day. There was the about 20 years before Mary gave birth to Jesus at the innkeeper's cave, there were two schools, one by the name of a rabbi that started it by the name of Hillel, another rabbi by the name of Shemaiah started it. Uh, they were considered, I guess you'd consider them the Dallas Theological Seminary and the Master Seminary of their day. Uh, now, I'm not sure uh, which one was which, but I know Paul went to the school of Hillel. So let's call that DTS, okay? So Paul went there. That's where I went, by the way. Again, we have this competition going. And legend has it that uh, someone walked up to the two rabbis, Hillel and Shemaiah, and asked them to, to give us the meaning, what, give us the summation of all of the law and the prophets while standing on one foot. Let me do it right here. Standing on one foot. Shemaiah said, I, I've got terrible knees. I can't do that. Hillel said, I'll give it a shot. And so on one foot, he said this, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Sound familiar? This would be 20 years before Jesus. Confucius, uh, the renowned Eastern philosopher 500 years before Jesus, uh, had this phrase, do not, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Sound familiar? Is Jesus just, is this plagiarism that Jesus is doing with the, with the law? Is Jesus just reiterating what people have said for 500 years? You guys know a little bit about the gold rush out here. I mean, they have discovery shows now, like Alaska's Gold Rush. And everybody's trying to find the mother load, find the big million-dollar deal. And, that, and I was watching one last night with Logan over at uh, the Crotz house. And Logan loves the show. And, and they're picking out all this dust. And it's like they, they do all of this work. They pour mo- so much money and time and effort to get this gold, these flakes of dust trying to hit the mother load. And inevitably, they're going to come across what's called pyrite gold. You guys know that, that phrase, pyrite gold, which is the gold that new panners would find. And they find big chunks of it, and they're like, ah, Eureka, I found it! Only to discover some old codger comes by and goes, ha, And he'd hit it, and it would flake off. And he'd say, this is not nearly as heavy, it's worth nothing. And he goes, look at the properties. Gold is a lot heavier, stable than this pyrite gold. I would call the school of Confucius, the school of Hillel, the pyrite gold. ...that people would latch on to. And what Jesus does in Matthew 7, 12... ...is he gives us the mother load. Because most people knew the law... ...but they knew it in the negative. Don't do to others what you would not have done to yourself. And we use this as parents all the time, right? Don't we? Do you want to be poked in the eye? Well, then why are you poking your brother in the eye? Do you want to get your hair pulled? Then why are you pulling your brother? I mean, on and on and on. We use that rule all the time. And it acts like a leash... 
doesn't it? With our kids, we just we put a leash on our kids and go, you don't want uh, to have this happen to you. We restrain their actions. They're poking, they're prodding, they're yelling. Because we tell them, you won't want that done to you. So we pull them back. But is, is that what Jesus is after here? Commentator Craig Bomberg says that in its negative form, the golden rule could be satisfied by doing nothing. In other words, just you can sit in the barca lounger and you could act out on the golden rule that was stated before Jesus was ever came on the scene. But the true gold in this law, the mother load in this law is that in this in this law is that Jesus transforms the negative and he turns it into a positive. Did you catch it? Craig Bloomberg continues, the positive form moves us to action on behalf of others. The rule calls people to action, not restraint. A young lawyer came up to Jesus and said, sum up the law and the prophets to me. And so what did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He, he sums it up again, and it's the same idea. I think it's the same idea that he's capturing here in 712, is that it's about love, it's about action. But our culture reduces love to a thought or to a feeling. That you, you feel love, and so then you act. But when you look in Scripture, love is always something that is motivated by God's movement first. That when he loves, he acts. Uh, whether it's parting of the Red Sea or whether it's walking you through the valley of the shadow of death. He moves with his people. Can you imagine if, if God is, has brought Moses and the children of Israel to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them? And Moses looks out and he sees little Logan and he sees Logan like clinging to Judy's, to Judy's uh, dress and just going, Mommy, Mommy, are we going to die? I mean, look at the, the soldiers are coming. What's going to happen? And and then he looks at, Moses looks at his brother and his sister, and they're just kind of doing one of these numbers. I knew it. I knew he'd amount to nothing. I mean, he's bringing us out here to die. I mean, what's the deal? And then Moses looks up at God and he goes, do, do you see what I'm seeing here? We're about to get crushed. Did you bring us out of Egypt just to get slaughtered? And can you imagine God looking down at Moses going, Moses, I want you to know, however this turns out, I love you. I love you, man. No. He says, raise your staff. I'm about to move in ways that you can't even imagine. When God loves, he acts. Romans 5a, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I hear Jen say to me, Brian, you don't love me, do you? You know what's usually after? It's after I haven't like taken out the trash over a long time. It's after I come home late repeatedly and I haven't called her. It's after I do all of these things that I, I should know to do, but I just don't because I'm being selfish. And she doesn't say, Brian, aren't you considerate? Aren't you, uh, why aren't you, you know, she didn't question my loyalty. What does she question? She questions my love. Not because I didn't say it enough, but because I haven't acted the way that a loving person should act towards my wife. Jesus says, when you look at 7 verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, and here's the hinge, do. That word, that verb is in the present tense. It is movement. It is, he, he doesn't expect us to have restraint. He expects us to have activity. The golden rule just doesn't restrain us from action. It actually releases us to act, to move into people's lives. We don't have to wait until we're poked or prodded or somebody's pulling on our hair. What Jesus is going is going, no, apply it now. That's the real gold. Eugene Peterson captures it great in the book, in, the, in his paraphrase, The Message, where he says, here's a simple rule of thumb. Guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. 
I heard on a commercial one that uh, just, just recently in the past week that they did this study. I don't know how they figured this out, but that we have generally, humans have about 3,000 thoughts a minute. I don't know if there's like a guy going, there's a thought, there's a thought. I don't know, I don't know how you get that, but let's just assume that that's true. How many of my thoughts during the day have to do with stuff that I wish somebody would do for me? Why didn't they ask me out to lunch? Why, why didn't they call me up? Why didn't they ask me to the game? Why didn't they comment on my Facebook status? Why does it seem like they're always having that much fun? Why didn't I get the promotion? Why did, and how much of my thoughts are centered on what, what people have not done for me? And what Jesus is doing here is going, that's the problem, is that we're such a self-absorbed people that most of our thoughts, 3,000 thoughts per day, I wonder what the percentage for me, just me, would be on me and what people haven't done for me, what God hasn't done for me. I'm going to guess it's going to be 90%. And Jesus says, if you want the gold and the golden rule, you've got to reverse that and say, what, what, what you would want done to you, do. Do unto them. Comment on their Facebook status. Ask them out to lunch. Do this. Do ex- Move into people's lives. So the question is, is, are you merely using the golden rule like a leash, like we do with our kids? Or are you using it as something that would release you to move into the context and the areas that God wants you to move? And what I want to talk about is just three main contexts. And we could do it across all contexts, but just three that I think are very applicable to our life. Uh, first of all, we're going to discover the gold in our marriage. Uh, think back to when you first started pursuing somebody. Maybe for you it's your first love, somebody in high school. Or maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Hopefully that's your spouse. Think back to the, the person that you pursued that you wanted to pursue. Think about all the things that you did to find out about that person. Uh, You found out about their loves, their desires, their wants, their dreams, and then you acted on those things. Jen had this love for William Shakespeare that I, I could not match. But you know what I found myself doing? Pouring through William Shakespeare, pulling out sonnets. I know it sounds so crazy. Pulling out sonnets and quotes and stuff, and I would send them in love letters to Jen. Do you know the last time I looked at a William Shakespeare book? play, sonnet, poem, before I got married. Why is it that before you get married, you love musicals? You love the ballet. You love spending hours listening to him talk about his hunting escapades and fishing stories and high school trophies that he won. You just loved it. But then after you said, I do, you developed this mysterious allergy to all that stuff. Is that just me, or is anybody else out there in that book? I've got that allergy. Apply the rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, take heed. That does not mean, because I want to go see UNC play Washington, which, by the way, this sermon is doing real well because UNC won. I just had to tell you that, so I'm real excited. So for you Husky fans, I'm sorry, but not really. Anyway, this Sunday, boy, I'd love to watch the UNC Washington game. I'd love to have a big thing of wings and a big Coke and a burger and all messy. I would love to do that. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Jen to that sports bar because that's what I would want to do. That's not what this verse is getting at. What this verse is getting at is that we tend to give love the way that we would receive it. We speak the love language that we know. But what, Paul, what Jesus is getting at is he's going, no, no, you need to... Do what you would want done to them. So you need to know them. Peter picks up on this when he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding way. You know what I love about that phrase? He doesn't ever say understand your wife. Even Peter knew that was an impossibility. But he does say 
live with your wives in an understanding way. At least try. Do you know your spouse's love language? Do you know the, the, your, your significant other's love language? Do you know what, what, what they love? Their desires, their passions, their wants, all of that? I, I saw a, 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 like a, I don't know, plaque or something right by some, this, this, a friend of our sink. And it said this phrase. It said, um, nothing puts me in the mood more than a man who does the dishes. The reason why I know that plaque was there is because my nine-year-old daughter came up to me and said, Daddy, what does in the mood mean? I'm like, you're going to explain this to her. I want you to know that. If you don't know the sp- your spouse's love language, then just ask. And if you don't have the courage to ask, then just listen to their criticisms. So Gary Smalley, I think, is he the one that wrote the five love languages? Was it Gary Smalley? Chapman is one of the guys. Uh, but, he, but one of the best quotes from that book was is that he said this, My spouse's criticisms about my behavior provide me with the clearest clues to her primary love language. My spouse's criticisms about my behavior provide me with the clearest clues to her primary love language. Jen, early on in a relationship, would say, Brian, why, why can't you get home on time? Why, why can't you just, you call to, you'd be, around, you'd be home around 6 at 7 o'clock. I'm like, well, that's around 6 to me. Like 7 comes right after 6. What's the big deal? So I would bring home flowers. She would take those flowers and then chuck them on the kitchen table. I'm like, I spent a good $5 on those prepackaged flowers from the grocery store. And you just toss them away like that? She said, I remember she said to me, Brian, you don't, you don't get it, which I didn't. But why, why would I care about flowers that, are, flowers that are going to die tomorrow when I could have had you home earlier? Now, if I was a smarter man, I would have been listening to the criticisms. Clue, love language, quality time. If your husband is going, always asking you, honey, what do you think about this thing I just made in the, I just built in the garage? What do you think about this, uh, this buck that I just shot? What do you think about uh, this, um, this story that I told? What do you, and he's always asking you to, for affirmation. He's fishing for it all the time. Guess what his love language is? He, he wants you to, to praise him. He feels loved when you give him affirmation. The problem is that most of us aren't married. We, we speak two different languages in marriage, don't we? And so what Jesus is saying is if you want the gold in the relationship, love, seek to know their love language more than giving it your way. If I could just brag on on Jen for just a minute, because she's not here. She'll be here on Tuesday uh, to get ready for the conference. But uh, there was one anniversary. Anniversaries tend to be my deal, my domain. I'll find the babysitter. I'll get the restaurant. I'll plan out whatever we're going to do. And this one anniversary, Jen said, I, I got this, Brian. So she planned the restaurant, went to this great restaurant. She had taken care of the babysitter. We, we show up, we eat, great meal, good conversation. And I'm ready for dessert at this point in time. And I'm not talking about food, okay? So I, I'm sorry, I'm a marriage counselor, so I'm going to talk about that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if your kids are going, to, what's he talking about now? Dessert? What's the deal? So anyway, I'm ready for that. Jen goes, no, no, there's one more thing. She produces two tickets to the Born Ultimatum. It was the first night of the born, the last born movie. And she knew that I would love that. I looked at that. I was like, you, you, you actually went online, got the tickets, reserved it, set to go. She had the popcorn money, Coke money, because I like a big thing of popcorn when I'm watching the movie. I just like to get all greased up. So she had all of that. And I just looked at her and I said, honey, you are getting some cuddling tonight. There is no doubt about it. Why? Because she's speaking my love language. And something happens when we actually apply what Jesus asked us to apply in those relationships. Let me just give a shameless plug. Jeff mentioned the weekend to remember. I don't know if any of you have gone to one of these before or planning on going this weekend. I know they get a, a great 50% rate if you sign up with this group. And I'm not saying this just because I'm, I'm a speaker, because uh, we do about 150 a year. I don't make it to all of them. Uh, 
but, but think about this. When was the last time you invested in your marriage? Uh, we, we make sure that our car is maintained. We make sure that our kids have all that they need and got the schooling and got the, the sports and we're a taxi driver for them. We make sure that our bodies are maintained by going to the doctor once a year. But marriage is the one thing in our life that God said, this will outlast your kids, believe it or not. You will kick them out when they're 18, preferably. This will outlast everything in your life. Your cars, they'll, they'll be recycled. But your wife, your spouse, your husband, this is still death to you part. When was the last time you invested in your marriage? And if not this conference, and I would, I would recommend good coaching. I would recommend a good book. I'd recommend something to say, I want to pursue, move into this relationship to show my spouse I value who they are. And I want to invest in this to make it last. So I'd say just do it. If you're thinking about it for this weekend, just do it. Someone will take care of your kids. Jeff and Judy have six. They'll be fine to take care of them. So just throw in five more. It's no big deal. And Jeff told me that this is an excused absence on Sunday. So you'll be fine if you, if you don't show up. Okay. Not just gold in our marriage, but it's gold in our conflict. Uh, we imagine when we look at whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It, it almost feels like, oh, just be nice. I mean, let's pull a Rodney King here. Can't we all just get along? Isn't that what this passage is about? That's not, Jesus is about, that's not what Jesus is saying about it at all. What he's saying is sometimes the most loving thing you can do with somebody is pick a fight. Look in Galatians 2, Peter and Paul. It says, I love the translation. It says that, that Paul got in his face. I got in his face. In other words, I, 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 it almost came to a fist fight. Because you don't get in somebody's personal, face unless, personal space unless you've got an issue. And Paul has noticed something in his life. And he says, I love you enough to confront you. I love you enough not to let yourself go down this path. And sometimes the most loving thing that we can do in a relationship is actually confront somebody. Now, I confess, this is not my typical response. When it comes to conflict, I like to avoid it at all costs. Now, some of us avoid it in one of two ways. Some of us are shouters. We don't want to deal with the issue, so we just get angry and we we let it out by yelling. It doesn't solve anything, but boy, it makes us feel better. Others of us are stuffers. And we just stuff the emotion down like a landmine and then eventually that pops off on somebody else that wasn't even in the midst of the conflict. I'm a stuffer. We're back from Atlanta, three and a half hour trip from Atlanta to Charlotte. The kids are in the back seat. Jen and I had had some moments of intense fellowship uh, that were not good ones. And I was suffering from a case of gen digestion. I was a little irritated. And I remember the only thing that I said to Jen on that three and a half hour ride was, what do you think your kids want for dinner tonight? Why? Because I'm spending three and a half hours building my deposition about why she's wrong and I'm right. Conflict avoider. I don't want to move into conflict. I want to avoid it at all costs. And what happens when we do that is that we send ourselves into isolation. It brings up one of my favorite verses in all scripture, Proverbs 18.1, where Solomon says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own destruction. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And that's what we do when we avoid conflict. We break out against all sound judgment because it's only going to get worse. That silent card has never worked for me. Never. It only makes things worse. When Adam and Eve broke God's heart, God didn't just stay in his barca lounger. He, he came down. He sought to restore the relationship. And if I could sum up the Bible, the whole Bible, it really is as God, God pursues people that want to avoid him. That's the gospel. God pursuing people that want to avoid him. 
The most loving thing that I can do for an alcoholic is to pull him out of the bar. The most loving thing that I can do for a guy that's addicted to porn is to ask him tough questions. The most loving thing uh, that I can do with a gossip is not just ignore it, but to actually confront and say, do you understand how you're coming across and you say you're a believer? Can you talk about people like this? The most loving thing that I can do with someone who hurts me is tell them. The most loving thing that I can do with Jen in a conflict is not to ignore it, but to move through my discomfort, my awkwardness, and talk to her. Some of us believe that I can be okay with God if I'm not okay with his kids. You wouldn't be that way. If Jeff came up to me and started making jokes about Brantley, saying, oh, you know, yeah, she's, you know, this or that, we got issues. And so in 1 Peter 3, 7, where God says, uh, Peter says to, to husbands, live with their, your wives in an understanding way, he goes on to say that if you don't, Don't think your prayers are going to get through the ceiling. You're not okay with God if you're not okay with his daughter. That's why in communion, he says, before you have communion vertically, you better have communion horizontally. No, yeah, I got that right. Got my axis all right. That's why we need to resolve the conflict before we take the bread and the cup or else we drink it to our own condemnation. I mean, that's that's serious. So if I'm going to bring out the gold and the golden rule. I'm going to push away discomfort. I'm going to push away awkwardness. I'm going to push away uh, the pain uh, of maybe confronting somebody that I don't want to. And in many cases, what's going to happen is I'm I'm going to push away from desiring vindication in order to get reconciliation. Back when apartheid finally fell down, Nelson Mandela had set up what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Council. And because of all the atrocities that had gone on in South Africa, they were like, how are we going to heal the bonds between black and white? We can't just inflict the damage. We can't just seek vindication for all that they did to us. So what are we going to do? So what they did was they set up these councils, uh, these, these mini conferences where they would bring in the victims of great crimes and they bring the perpetrator to that council. The victim would share what they went through and the council would ask, what should we do to the perpetrator of this crime? At one particular moment, there was a woman there that had lost her son. There was an officer, uh, I'm going to get his name right here, Officer Vandebruck. And he had acknowledged, he had come forward and said, I I acknowledge that I did atrocities under apartheid. And he had killed her only son. He had pulled him out of the house, shot him in the head. Uh, He and his other officers partied. ...while they roasted the son's body. Eight years later, uh, he came back for more to this woman. It wasn't enough to have her son. She took, he took her husband. Beated him. Beat him. Then, then brought him. Then brought her. Brought her to the place uh, where they had put him on a similar spit. And wanted her to see them laugh while his body went up in flames. As they lit the fire, the only words, her last words that her husband said to her was, forgive them. So she's at this council. All of that has just come out. What are you thinking? The council looks at the woman and says, what would you have us do? She said, I want you to do three things. First, uh, she said... I want Mr. Vanderbrook to take me to the place where they burn my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust 
and give him a decent burial. Secondly, Mr. Vanderbrook took all my family away from him, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like someone to lead me to where he is seated so that I can embrace him and know that he would know that my forgiveness is real. Officer Vanderbrook fainted. People started weeping and one lone woman in the back started singing out, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And they all sang in the chorus. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Could it be that the gold and the golden rule is that what Jesus wants to see is a world that is not plagued by bitterness and rage and hatred, but that when you actually apply the rule, you do the irrational. The thing that doesn't make sense so that you become a picture to a watching world of what the love of God actually looks like that he is chasing down people that were his enemies and offering something they did not deserve. When we think about the conflicts of our life, what do we typically do? We want to be heard, we want to be understood, and then when we wrong somebody, we expect and want grace. And so I ask you, next time that you have been given a haymaker by your spouse, next time that your employee gets under your last nerve, next time your kids irritate you to no end, maybe we need to apply the golden rule. How can I understand where their anger came from? How can I understand how this conflict began? How can I seek to maybe do the irrational and give them grace when they least deserved it? Does that mean that we're going to get hurt? Yeah. I think it was easy for that woman to do that. But it just reminds us of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Uh, It's gold not just for marriage. It's not just for relationships and and conflict. But I think, finally, uh, it's gold for Anchorage Grace. How many of you have played the game Pictionary? Like Pictionary? Okay, you kind of get a card, you get a a name or something that you're supposed to draw out. I'm terrible at Pictionaries. I don't don't even make stick figures look right. I'm just horrible. Uh, Here's what I want you to do. Do you have a piece of paper? We're playing Pictionary. Your word is church. Draw church. What would you draw for church. Go ahead and start drawing it. This is the interactive part of the message. Oh, one caveat. You cannot draw a steeple, a Bible, a cross, or a building. What are you going to draw? It's amazing. Our culture, that's what we think of, right? And when you actually try to draw it, it's going to look very weird and different and maybe even a little new agey. But when you look in Scripture, you don't see God talking much about steeples and about buildings and about campaigns to get buildings. What you see is a body that's always moving. You see a building that's always being built. You you see a bride that displays the glory of God. More than anything, you see a, a church that is a movement. Church means called out ones. It's a people, not a destination. And I wonder if we were to apply the gold uh, of the golden rule that we would stop talking about just coming to a place and huddling up, but it would be about moving out to do what we would like to see God, God to see done in the world. Two years under the church plant, uh, we were, the economy tanked. We had three full-time guys on staff. And in a church of the, uh, at that time was about 100. Uh, you'd think, man, why did you do that? Well, God had just provided us funds, and we did it. We felt like he would grow it to the point where he could support that, and we'd, we'd grow into that staff. And I remember as we were agonizing over what to do, because the money was not coming in, 
I remember we looked at the budget. We saw that 94% of our income that was coming in was spent on salaries, on office rent, and on, on meeting space. And in that moment, I believe I heard God say to me, as I was reading and as I was praying, as I was thinking, he said, Brian, I did not send you to start a church so that you could pay for salaries. Just, just hit me. It wasn't about that. It's about moving into a community. And here I was trying to, to, to keep an institution afloat. But it's not just about our resources and where our resources go as a church. What about our thoughts? What about our time? What about our, our talent? Where is that going? Is, it, is, it, is our churches chasing after the things that God chases after? Chasing after the people and loving the people that he loves? Caring for the people that he cares for that you see uh, represented in the life of Jesus? To go for the, the marginalized, the hurting, the suffering? Those that, that, that are the untouchables of society. See, Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could go to church. He died on the cross so the world might be reconciled to him and he chooses us to be messengers, ambassadors of that reconciliation. But too often our resources and our time are spent making sure this is taken care of. See, God doesn't get irritated with his people in the Bible because... uh, of, of, of gathering together. He gets irritated when they gather and don't move out. Think about the story of the Tower of Babel. God's not, it, the story of the Tower of Babel was not about uh, God being intimidated by a skyscraper. It wasn't like, okay, once they reach 10 stories, we're coming down there. Because that's just too high. If you look through Genesis, you'll notice that three times God says, go, be fruitful, inhabit the world. Go, invade the world. Bring my name, my fame into the world. But no, they gather together to build something for their name and their fame. So he says, I'll fix this. (laughs) We'll confuse the languages. But too often, the church that means called out ones tend to be the called in ones. That we come together. The early church... And made themselves a people on the move. You know why we have cemeteries in the back of churches? If you've ever driven by cemeteries, you know, held your breath because that's the old trick. You know, you, you don't breathe where they, those that aren't breathing are, and that kind of thing. I don't know if you ever did that. Maybe that was just me, but that was, a, that was a game we played. You know why there's cemeteries in the back of churches? Because early on, when the church started getting lands, the poor could not afford to bury their loved ones. So typically they'd be buried in a debtor's tomb or a poor, poor area where people were just bounded together. There was no tombstones, no nothing. So the church said, well, we can help with that. And they offered up their land so that anybody could bury their people there on the church property. You know why we have hospitals today? Because by and large, when a plague would hit a village, people would leave. <laughs> but the early Christians would charge in. To help the sick, the hurting, the dying. Look at this quote by a philosopher, not a believer. A philosopher back in Greek times. He was an Athenian philosopher in AD 125. They do good. He's talking about Christians. They do good to those who are their neighbors. They love one another. And from the widows, they do not turn away. They rescue the orphan. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed, all of them provide for his needs. If there is, any, um, if there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not abundance of ne- necessaries, listen to this, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. When was the last time you fasted so somebody else could eat? Let me just rephrase that. When was the last time you fasted? I don't miss many meals. The early Christians 
they were propelled to say, that person's not eating, I can go without so they can eat. That's why Gandhi says we have dynamite that if we just applied it, it would change the world. Are we attacking the pressing needs in Anchorage? What are the pressing needs in Anchorage? Tell me the difference between a flashlight and a floodlight. Flashlight and a floodlight. Give me some differences. Again, this is the interactive part. I'm not planning this. So give me the differences. What are they? Brightness. A floodlight's a lot brighter, right? Very focused, right? Yep, very focused. What else? The power source. That's a good one. Power's powered by batteries. On, you know, you've got to continue to recharge those. The other one's just plugged into some electrical outlet. What else? Big one. What's the biggest difference between a flashlight and a floodlight? What's that? Flashlight's for one person, and it's by nature mobile. You can take it anywhere. A floodlight is affixed to a place, and that if you walk by it, if you have a sensor, it will come on. So here's my question to Anchorage Grace. Are you going to be known in this community as a great floodlight? That you have built a great school, you have a great church, you have great people, and you have great Bible studies, and that the only way that people will experience the light of Anchorage Grace is when they come by and they trip the sensor and they experience the light of Christ? Or will Anchorage Grace be a group of 500 flashlights that are moving into the darkest corners of Anchorage? Will you be flashlights or just a big floodlight? And I would commend to you that the gold of the golden rule is that if we want to see light in Anchorage, Jesus says go. Take your flashlight, go point it in the darkest place of Anchorage and let my light shine. That's why I need the gospel. I need the gospel because I can't do that on my own. Uh, when, G, when, when, Jen, when I've got that case of Jen digestion, I do not want to confront Jen. And I need Jesus to give me the spirit and the strength to do so. Uh, when, when I have somebody that's irritated with me, the last thing in the world that I want to do is confront them. When I would rather sit in church and go to all the benefits of the church, the last thing that I want to do is be a flashlight. I need the gospel to help me do the irrational to forgive when it's not deserved, to move when I want to sit, to love when I want to be loved. About 200 years after Jesus, a guy by the name of Emperor Severus, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire. That would make sense since he's an emperor. And he read Matthew 7, 12. And he loved it so much that he put it on a plaque, he he put it in gold and he hung it in his palace. That's how it came known as the golden rule. The saddest part about that is that though he knew it, though it changed the decor of his house, it never changed the direction of his heart. He knew it, but he never applied it. He never found the God that wrote that rule, much like Gandhi. It never became dynamite in his life. And I wonder, church... We know it. We put it on plaques, on bumper stickers, on little things that hang on our rearview mirror. We know it. But do we apply it? Back in college, Jeff was a classic surfer dude. He had like this cool blonde hair. It was like flowing blonde hair. And I was so jealous of his hair because I just had like this poofy brown hair. And I'm glad the tables are turned a little bit. It's like justice is being served. 
So guys, if you feel like you're just not the good-looking guy, one day it'll come back around. Uh, They'll be losing their hair and all that, and you'll be like, yes, it's great. And you would think by looking at Jeff in college that he was like this rebellious guy because he had this cool hair, and he's just a a cool guy. I love being around. Again, I was Jeff Kratz's roommate. I mean, he was the man. And, but yet, he was not rebellious at all. He never even skipped chapel, to my knowledge. I did. I at least did that. But he never skipped chapel. So when we talked about this event, and we talked about doing this, sneaking past guards, risking prison, maybe getting expelled the night before graduation, it went against our very fabric to even do this. But because of one simple phrase, just do it, it got lodged into our brains, it affected our hearts, and we said, how could we not? And I I just think back and I go, what if, what, what if would have happened is 20 years later that we had never done that? And we'd be sitting around and we'd be having this conversation. Go, Remember when we had that thought 20 years ago about scaling the Vine Center and putting up that silly banner? Can you believe that we almost did that? That was crazy, man. How many of those conversations do we have every day? I can't believe I almost told that guy about Jesus. Can, Can you believe that? Can you believe that I almost stopped a cycle of conflict in my relationship by not just shouting and not just stuffing, but actually moving in where I didn't feel comfortable? Can you imagine I almost did that that one time? I almost decided to become a flashlight rather than help continue to build the floodlight. I mean, that's just crazy. Remember that time that we almost went to that conference to help our marriage? Remember that time that we almost, what is it for you? Trusted Jesus? Life is too short to live for almost. So my encouragement to us is, let's go for the gold. Just do it. I invite you now to bow your heads, close your eyes. Let me talk to you pastorally just for a moment. Because we've been stirred by the word of God and by the golden rule, the very words of Christ, I just would invite you now to examine your heart for all the men and women, boys and girls across the auditorium to examine their souls and for you to think about where you stand before Christ. Are you in conflict? Are you still wondering if you know Christ yet or not is my question to you. The gospel is the only answer to how to live a life that's energized and proactive, that's pursuing others, a life that runs towards conflict, a life that runs towards reconciling relationships, a life that runs towards a holy marriage, a life that runs towards lost people that don't want to hear about the Bible or don't want to hear about Jesus. And I just want to ask you, are you yet transformed? Has God invaded your life and caused you to turn from sin and to bow the knee before the living Lord, the exalted Christ, the Lord of the universe? Is he yet the Lord of your heart? If not, I would invite you to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, to invite him into your life. 
for you to release your love for the world and to see Jesus Christ as most precious to you. Jesus came as the God-man 2,000 years ago, died on an old rugged cross as the substitutionary payment for your sins. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we know that we deserve hell and judgment before a holy God. We have offended holy God, but Christ stood in our place and bore the wrath upon himself, suffering a shameful death, dying and on the third day rising again, conquering death and hell, and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So if you need to know Jesus, I invite you, believe on him. Lord, we thank you that you are a saving God and that, God, you have transformed our lives, that old things have passed away and everything has become new if we know you. I pray, God, for those that are still debating, still wondering whether or not they should give their lives to you. I pray that you would draw them to yourself even today. Today is the day of salvation. You've given it to us as a gift, and we thank you that we can come face-to-face with you, even through a verse in the Bible from Matthew. Words that astounded the Pharisees, astounded the crowds. They have astounded us today. Lord, let us live the gospel. I pray that we would live the gospel in our marriages. Let us be parents who raise our children in the Lord in this golden rule positive love towards them and let us be salt and light to our world i thank you god for this morning where we could come back to the basics of christian living what you've called us to do to be flashlights to be lights in our world for your glory in jesus name we pray amen i'd invite you now to stand for our final word of closing we always want to invite you to come up front just